Welcome everyone to episode 19 of Curse Land, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Curse Land, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. Forget Valentine's Day. Let's talk about John Frum Day. At this very moment, on a tiny island in the South Pacific, natives are preparing their annual rituals to welcome a mysterious messiah expected to return on February 15th. In this remote corner of the world, every year the islanders await the return of a World War II American GI who goes by the name of John Frum, the unlikely deity of one of the planet's most remote and unique religious cults. From MessyNessyChic.com On a remote volcanic island, American soldiers are worshipped like gods. The community bears his name, worships aspects of American culture, and looks to John as their unwavering G.I. Joe deity, waiting day in and day out for the moment he returns, ideally by way of a U.S. military plane, similar to the one he supposedly rode in on back in World War II. In anticipation of his return, they've been building giant grass model planes and singing the American National Anthem to entice him back ever since U.S. soldiers withdrew from their island in the 1940s. The John Frum cult is one of the last remaining cargo cults that developed in the aftermath of U.S. presence in the South Pacific during World War II. Tana is an isolated, 40-kilometer-long, 19-kilometer-wide island between New Caledonia and Fiji in the archipelago country of Vanuatu. When a cocktail of Christian missionaries and colonialists swept through the islands in the 19th century and forced the native population into indentured servitude, Tana resisted fiercely and was found to be practicing cannibalism. While such customs have been long eradicated, today it still remains one of the least developed islands in Vanuatu. During World War II, as the Pacific Ocean became a theater of war between the Allies and Japan, Vanuatu's archipelago was inhabited by thousands of U.S. servicemen. To the secluded islanders, their encounters with great, big, flying planes that came out of the sky, bringing mysterious modern treasures and amenities with them, would have seemed no less superhuman than witnessing a man walk on water, part oceans, or appear with a glowing halo around his head. But who exactly was this John Frum character? Did he ever exist? And if so, in what capacity? There are several versions of this story. The first is that Mr. Frum was actually a misinterpretation of a spoken encounter with an American soldier who arrived on the island and introduced himself as John Frum America. Dressed in military clothing, it's said that this man appeared on a beach at sunset, his face obscured by the light, carrying a large walking stick, and promised that food and medical supplies would soon follow. Sure enough, John Frum delivered on his word. I looked and there were soldiers everywhere. We didn't know where they'd come from, said one villager speaking in a 1991 BBC documentary, The Fantastic Invasion. They arrived night after night and people woke up astonished. Tano wasn't an important holdout during World War II, but its military base at Ifate did end up employing about a thousand of its local people. 
In a matter of months, they built a base for a quarter of a million American soldiers on the archipelago, with military jeeps, warehouses, hospitals, supply shops, and even a cinema. The natives were given food, clothing, and much-needed medical attention. We were used to a master-servant relationship, said another local. When the Americans came, they treated us like equals, whereas the British and French colonists had no respect for us at all. They didn't even bother to use your names. After so many years of internalizing their treatment, he says the Americans changed our way of thinking about ourselves. There were also black Americans and white Americans arriving. They gave their lives for us, too, in these little Pacific islands. That first American soldier who allegedly made contact with the village became a legend amongst the people of Tana. While some anthropologists suggest the real John Frum might have been a complete fabrication, a native masquerading as a serviceman he'd encountered on a nearby island, or the result of a hallucinogenic kava vision, in a way, it almost doesn't matter. John Frum was, and is, manyfold. He was a healer, a supplier of food, a maker of roads, a sorcerer of agriculture. He's the last vestige of the most invested relationship with the West they had, which split like a lover in the night. Suddenly, hospitals, farming supplies, and first aid shipments all came to a halt when World War II ended, and so the Frumians have been waiting ever since for his return. In 1957, the movement's chief at the time founded a mini non-violent army called TAUSA. Military marches became a weekly ritual, adopting the drills of Western military as their religious practice to encourage the return of the American Messiah along with his precious cargo. They built mock runways, airplanes, and military equipment made with tree branches, straw, and rudimentary materials in an effort to entice John Frum back to the island. To this day, they still fly the American and U.S. Navy flags, carry sticks like rifles, and wear makeshift military uniforms crafted in the village. The Red Cross, which had provided health care for the troops and natives alike, also became a prominent religious symbol across the island. Most islanders don't speak English, but they all know the words, God bless America. While the generation of natives that was old enough to remember the American occupation during World War II has nearly died off, the alleged words of John Frum have been taught by community leaders as religious scripture, and John Frum had some very specific advice. For many years, you have been ignorant of the world. You don't know anything about the countries of the world, but I, John, know them. There are many nations of the world, but you shouldn't have faith in any of the others. Only America is your friend. Remember that. One day, America will come and help you again. My words are the same as the church's teachings. The Bible's promises are the same as my promises. When he comes, we will have riches, Chief Isaac Juan Nikiao told journalists. We will have lorries, iceboxes, and concrete houses. We will have education. We will be free. In the meantime, the cult that idolizes American military culture ironically rejects Western modernity and Christian education that elders believe could pose a threat to local customs. To protect its interests, the John Frum Party even won its own seat in Vanuatu's parliament. In 2011, Radio New Zealand International reported that a woman of Vietnamese origin had taken over the party. Thetham Goise, sister of the wealthiest business entrepreneur and private employer in Vanuatu, 
was the first female to become president of the movement since its founding. It was reported in 2013 that Goise had been involved in corrupt activities during her role as Vanuatu's ambassador to Russia beneath the active volcano of Mount Yasser in the hard-to-reach village of Sulphur Bay, celebrations were once a weekly occurrence. Despite attempts to resist Christian influence on the island, the movement has waned as the elder generation loses its grip on the community, creating a divide amongst Tana's 26,000 islanders. The elusive Americans, with their airplanes and iceboxes, canned food and Coca-Cola, have yet to return while Christian missionaries continue to maintain an increasingly welcome presence on the island, even if they aren't offering the natives American blend cigarettes. And in much the same way we're growing tired of commercially manufactured holidays like Valentine's Day, the people of Tana appear to have grown tired of waiting for John Frum. The Strait of Malacca has long borne the passage of trading ships. Over the centuries, most of these merchant men reached their destinations safely. However, one day in the summer of 1947, or 1948, a forbidding SOS message drifted across the Strait's airwaves. All officers, including captain, are dead, lying in chart room and bridge, possibly whole crew dead. This was followed by some indecipherable Morse code chatter, probably more SOS signals, and then one final grisly message. I die. From the website shortoncontent.wordpress.com, a story by M.B. Ford. This story is entitled The SS Uring Medan, Death Ship. The macabre distress call was picked up by other ships and international listening posts. Through triangulation, they identified the vessel as the Dutch freighter SS Uring Medan and plotted its approximate position to within the Strait of Malacca. Of the two U.S. merchant ships that heard the Uring Medan's grim message, Silver Star was the nearest and she raced to the aid of the stricken vessel. Within a few hours, Silver Star arrived upon a hushed sight. The calm sea gently lapped at the Uring Medan's stationary hull and the crew was nowhere to be seen above decks. The American ship hailed the Dutch ship with whistles, calls, and hand signals, but there was no response. Nothing on board the Erie craft moved. A boarding party was quickly assembled. What they would discover would prove such an alarming sight that it has made the Uring Medan into one of the strangest nautical mysteries of all time, eclipsing even the Marie Celeste in macabre detail, if not in infamy. As Silver Star's boarders discovered, the SOS message proved correct. Every member of the ship's crew lay dead. The crew's corpses lay scattered in various places below deck. The captain was dead on the bridge and his officers in the wheelhouse, chart room, and wardroom were all dead too. More than this, all the corpses still had their eyes open and faces upturned some with outstretched arms and expressions of sheer terror etched upon their features. As a May 1952 article in the rather official Proceedings of the Merchant Marine Council put it, there were dead men everywhere, the frozen faces upturned to the sun with mouths gaping open and eyes staring. The dead bodies resembled horrible caricatures. Silver Star's boarding party noted that even the ship's dog was dead, 
its face locked in a grimace that mirrored that of its masters. A trip to the communications room revealed the author of the SOS messages, also dead, his hand still on the Morse sending key, his eyes wide open and teeth bared. There was no sign of wounds or injuries on any of the bodies. The boarding party, according to one source, felt intense cold when on the lower decks. The decision was made to tow the mysterious ship back to port, but before they could get underway, smoke began emanating from somewhere below deck. The boarding party hurriedly returned to Silver Star and barely had time to cut the lines and get to a safe distance before the baffling ship exploded with such force that she lifted herself from the water and swiftly sank. That's the story, anyway. So what really happened on the SS or in Medan? Speculators have said that pirates killed the crew and sabotaged the ship, although this doesn't explain the peculiar grimaces and lack of obvious wounds on the corpses. Others have claimed that clouds of methane or other noxious natural gases could have bubbled up from fissures on the seabed and engulfed the ship, poisoning all on board. Carbon monoxide could have leaked from the engine room, killing the crew, say others. Even more fantastical stories involving aliens and ghosts abound, with the strange manner of the sailors' deaths pushing researchers into thinking supernatural foul play was the only explanation. Sadly, first-hand evidence of any aspects of the story is elusive. Over the decades, several marine historians have sought to uncover the truth about the ship's puzzling fate. Among these, Roy Bainton's research stands out. He writes, Searching the Dutch shipping records in Amsterdam seemed only to deepen the mystery. There was no mention of the ship at all, and my inquiries to the maritime authorities in Singapore drew a blank. I was facing the distinct possibility that this was simply a hoary old foxling yarn until Professor Theodore Searsdorfer of Essen, Germany entered the frame. He had read the plea I placed in Sea Breezes, a British magazine for old sailors, and I suddenly discovered that I was not alone. Searsdorfer had been on the case for 45 years. It seems that Searsdorfer furthered Bainton's progress, providing the name of the Silver Star, amongst other things. Bainton goes on to hypothesize that it was a deadly gas leaking from the cargo hold that caused the crew's demise. The development of such gases was outlawed under the Geneva Convention, and so perhaps shadowy governmental forces erased the Ureng Medan from the shipping registers, a cover-up. What follows is pure speculation, but there is a tantalizing possible explanation as to her crew's demise and her disappearance from the records. A fellow researcher, Otto Melke, mentions a mixed lethal cargo on the Uring Medan, Ziankali, potassium cyanide, and nitroglycerin. How this mixture could have gone unrecorded is a mystery, as the controls on such lethal cargoes, even 50 years ago, would have ensured reams of paperwork. There's a problem with the steamer, Silver Star. It did exist, but not quite as most articles tell us. It was actually named Silver Star Park and seemed to be Canadian in origin. By the time of its supposed encounter with the Uring Medan, it was more likely to be plying its trade in Brazilian waters and had been renamed the SS Santa Cecilia. Here's its entry in Lloyd's shipping register. And if you visit the show notes and click through the link to this article, you'll find a picture. As for the Zion Cali gas theory, 
Unit 731 was a secret research and development department within the Imperial Japanese Army that was dedicated to biological and chemical warfare. They used human beings in their experiments during the Second Sino-Japanese War and World War II, and thus were responsible for some of the most notorious war crimes carried out by Japanese personnel. Unit 731's research methods were unremittingly appalling, including vivisections carried out on living children without anesthetic. After the war ended, the U.S. secretly granted immunity to the head of Unit 731 and its physicians in exchange for elusive access to their findings. So, revoltingly, their abhorrent crimes went almost entirely unpunished. Shiro Ishii, the department's head, moved to Maryland to work on bioweapons research. Roy Bainton continues. So how was this deadly cargo moved around the South China Sea and through the Straits of Malacca during this troubled period? Not by air. The prospect of a cargo plane crashing with several tons of deadly gas on board was too horrendous to consider. No, you hired an insignificant old tramp steamer, preferably with a low-paid foreign crew, stowed the cargo in disguised oil drums and, like all serious smugglers, hoped for the best and a blind eye from authority. If we accept, due to the nature of her crew's deaths, that she was carrying deadly gas or chemicals, and if indeed she was a Dutch vessel, had this news broken, it would have been a major embarrassment for any government involved, especially in light of the Geneva Convention, hence the dead ends faced by any researcher. The story exists because, like the gases, it escaped. The first recording that I can find of this story seems to come from three 1948 articles printed in the Dutch newspaper, De Locomotive. They seem to support the escaping lethal gas theory. From the Wikipedia entry regarding them, the second and third article describe the experiences of the sole survivor of the Uring Medan crew, who was found by a missionary and natives on Tongi Atoll in the Marshall Islands. The man, before perishing, tells the missionary that the ship was carrying a badly stowed cargo of sulfuric acid and that most of the crew perished because of the poisonous flames escaping from broken containers. According to the story, the Uring Medan was sailing from an unnamed small Chinese port to Costa Rica and deliberately avoiding the authorities. The paper insists that it knows nothing more about the case than what has been printed and that it all came from an Italian man named Silvio Sherley, if you want to read the original text, I have found it online. And if you open this article, there is a link to that. The article does include a tantalizing photograph, and the caption seems to insist it is of the Uring Medan. If that's true, it surely isn't. It's almost certainly the only photograph in existence of the doomed ship. The caption translates roughly as, The burned wreck of Uring Medan shortly before it sank to the bottom of the ocean with its secrets. So who was Silvio Sherley? Details are scant, but it seems that he was told the account while living in Trieste by a missionary. This missionary in turn heard it from the last surviving member of the Uring Medan's crew, a German who had related the end of his ship just before expiring. He said an unregistered cargo had leaked chemical fumes and overcome the crew. His lifeboat had made it to Tonagi Island in the Marshalls. Six others were in the boat, but the German was the only one left alive. He was taken to hospital, but died soon after, 
Tongi Island is also called Bokak Atoll, and while I can find reference to the presence of Catholic missionaries in the Marshall Islands in 1942 within a research paper concerning drift patterns from the Smithsonian Institution, I can't find their actual mission. The peculiar thing about the Uring Medan case is that on one side, you have a distinct lack of records. Nothing in Lloyd's Register, nothing in the Dictionary of Disasters at Sea, 1824 to 1962, and probably no silver star that sailed the Strait of Malacca. Yet, on the other hand, we have the story retold in the U.S. Coast Guard's Proceedings of the Merchant Marine Council, a queer place to be writing made-up fantasies. Who knows, possibly the ship's name was spelled incorrectly, possibly it was purposefully erased from the record, maybe it was a false name that it sailed under in the first place due to nefarious goings-on. As with many of these mysteries, it is unlikely that the truth will ever be uncovered. In some ways, though, it doesn't really matter whether the whole thing is a good old yarn or not, as the fascinating and gruesome nature of the tale serves its own purpose. Perhaps it's fitting to give the last word to the man who has plumbed the Urang Medan's depths more than any other, Roy Baton. I first heard this story as an ordinary seaman in the mess room on board an old tramp ship, the MV Port Halifax, whilst crossing the Pacific between Panama and Australia in 1960. Since then, I've probably carried out more research into this frustrating yarn than anyone else, and I notice that whenever you Google the ship, my name comes up. But although I want to believe it all, the more I dig, the more phony the whole thing begins to look, and I am amazed at the loose, sloppy reinterpretations of my research tailored to please the credulous hordes who will allow no skepticism to spoil their Halloween spirit. So, there you go. I wanted to take a minute between stories here to just stop and say thank you so much to everyone who has posted a review or donated to the show. I'm glad that you all like it, and I really do appreciate it. If you haven't done those things and feel so inclined, the links for all of that stuff can be found at the website, curse.land. Thanks again. In the mountains of the southern Appalachians, from North Carolina down through Georgia and Alabama, the remains of ancient stone structures line the ridges. Some of these are additions to natural rock formations. Others are entirely man-made. Who built these structures? Are they the remains of an ancient war fought in the Appalachians? Are they all that's left of the Moon-Eyed People? From the website NorthCarolinaGhosts.com The story is entitled The Moon-Eyed People. The Moon-Eyed People are a race of small men who, according to Cherokee legend, once lived in the southern Appalachians. The Moon-Eyed People were said to being physically very different from the Cherokee, being bearded and having pale, perfectly white skin. They were called Moon-Eyed because they were unable to see in daylight, their sensitive eyes being blinded by the sun. For this reason, they were strictly nocturnal and lived in underground caverns. Perhaps the most famous structure associated with the Moon-Eyed People is just over the North Carolina border in Georgia at Fort Mountain. 
Now a state park, Fort Mountain gets its name from the 850-foot-long stone wall that varies in height from 2 to 6 feet and stretches along the top of the ridge. This stone wall is thought to have been constructed around 400 to 500 CE. According to one Cherokee legend, this wall is a remnant of a war that the Moon-Eyed people fought and lost against the neighboring Creek Nation. The Creeks drove the Moon-Eyed people from their homeland during a full moon, which even the pale light of is blinding to these nocturnal people. Another version of the story is that it was the Cherokee themselves who waged war against the Moon-Eyed people, driving them from their home at Hawassi, a village near what is now Murphy, North Carolina, west into Tennessee. Both versions of the story say the Moon-Eyed people began living underground after losing the war. Cherokee cosmology is complex and fascinating, and describes a universe where humans share the world with other non-human supernatural peoples. In the traditional Cherokee concept of the world, races, such as the Nunahai or the Yunwesuti, are part of the natural world who interact with humans at their own discretion, similar to the traditional idea of fairies in the British Isles. However, what's interesting is that the Moon-Eyed people are never described as being supernatural, but are remembered as another group of humans who were physically very different than the Native Americans. Because the description of the Moon-Eyed people is that they're pale-skinned and bearded, this has led to some amount of speculation, quite a bit of it wild, that the legend of the Moon-Eyed people represents a Cherokee folk memory of contact with a group of European settlers who made it to the New World before Columbus. Particularly, the Cherokee legend of the Moon-Eyed People has been matched up with the Welsh legend of Prince Madoc. According to the Welsh story, Madoc ab Owain Gwynedd was a Welsh prince who, disenchanted with the Civil War racking his homeland, set sail with his brother, Rerid, and a few followers in 1170 across the Atlantic Ocean and landed somewhere around Mobile Bay, Alabama. After some exploring up and down the rivers of Southern America, Madoc decided he liked the place well enough and decided to move in. Leaving Rerid and some of his fellow Welshmen behind, Madoc returned to his native country and recruited enough followers to fill ten ships. He and his colonists set sail back to America and was never heard from in Wales again. Some have speculated that the Moon-Eyed people are the descendants of Madoc's colonists and that it was these Welshmen who fought a war with the Cherokee and these Welshmen who built the stone forts that dot the ridges of the mountains. Driven out by the Cherokee, Madoc's descendants found their way south to Florida and Alabama, where they continued to live, slowly absorbing bits of Native American culture, until they became a strange tribe of pale Indians, living and dressing in native ways, but speaking Welsh. But there's more to this story than the story. There is absolutely no historical or archaeological evidence to support the tale of Prince Madoc. King Owain Gwynedd was a real enough historical figure, but no contemporary source names either a Madoc or a Rerid as his son. The story of Madoc's journey seems to have arisen around 1580 as a piece of propaganda to bolster England's claim to the New World, which needed some bolstering because at that time, England's arch-rival, Spain, was doing most of the actual colonization in the Americas. Spreading the idea that someone from the British Isles had gotten there first painted the Spanish as Johnny-come-latelys usurping the rightful English claim to the Americas. Of course, the legitimacy of either claim would have been very correctly questioned by the vast number of people who happened to be living in the New World at the time. 
Stories of European settlers who encountered Welsh-speaking Indians began circulating in the late 17th century. A Reverend Morgan Jones claimed to have been captured by a people called the Doeg in present-day South Carolina in 1666, who he was astonished to learn spoke Welsh. According to Jones's account, he preached Christianity to the Doeg for a few months before being set free. Amazingly, Jones seems not to have told anyone of this interesting experience until 20 years after it happened. Another story tells of a Welsh sailor named Stedman who was shipwrecked somewhere on the Gulf Coast of Alabama or Florida in the 1660s and was astonished to discover a group of Welsh-speaking natives. Stedman's account failed to be published until 1777, and its authenticity is somewhat suspect. In the 18th and 19th centuries, these stories of Welsh Indians were extremely popular. Governor Robert Dinwid of Virginia even put forth the staggering sum of 500 pounds to finance an expedition to find the Welsh Indians he believed to be west of the Mississippi. Lewis and Clark even kept an eye out for the Welsh Indians on their famous expedition. This idea of Welsh Indians persisted long enough that for a good part of the 20th century, a historical marker commemorating Prince Madoc's journey and donated by the Daughters of the American Revolution stood on the beach in Mobile Bay until it was removed by a more historically conscientious member of the Park Service. When James Mooney published Myths and Legends of the Cherokee in 1902 and introduced the Cherokee legend of the Moon-Eyed people to a larger audience, seems to be when the Cherokee story and the story of Prince Madoc began to be conflated. The idea of Welsh Indians was just one of several popular ideas of pre-Columbian contact with the New World that were circulating in America at the time. The notion that the lost tribes of Israel somehow also managed to find their way to North America even found its way into the first new American religion when Joseph Smith published the Book of Mormon. Many of these stories seem to have risen up from the concept that the citizens of the new American nation had of Native Americans as opposed to the historical reality of the continent. The romantic idea of Indians as primordial, timeless, and having lived in essentially the same manner for centuries before European contact began to be prevalent in America as the new nation emerged. Ideas about the pre-contact size of the population of America at the time were also grossly underestimated. Americans saw the Indians as being scattered in small populations, unaware that these were the remnants of once populous nations whose ranks had been devastated by European diseases in the early years of contact. Modern estimates say as much as 90% of the native population of North America may have died from disease in the 16th and 17th centuries. These civilizations left behind physical remains which Europeans encountered, particularly the mound-building Cahokian culture left behind the remains of cities and temple complexes across the southeastern United States along the Mississippi Valley, stretching as far east as Town Creek Mound in North Virginia. At its height, around 1200, the city called Cahokia near modern St. Louis was twice the size of contemporary London and larger than any other city in North America would be again until the 20th century. Encounters with the abundant evidence of this civilization led to wild speculation about who built the mounds and what their purpose was. Unable to reconcile the physical evidence with their perceptions of the Native Americans, combined with the insidious assumptions of European superiority in all things, wildly speculative ideas about ancient European visitors rose up to fill the gaps. 
but except for a brief period of Viking contact in the 10th and 11th centuries, there is no evidence that such contact ever happened, and quite a bit of evidence that it didn't happen. So the hill forts that stretch across the southern Appalachians and the Cherokee legend of a conflict with some other people may very well be related. It could all be evidence of a war that was fought on an impressive scale on North American soil a very long time ago. We may never know the parties involved in the conflict, but we can be fairly certain that none of them were Welsh. Here's another story from the No Sleep subreddit. This one is again by Ghetto Ceratops. It's entitled Candles. I inherited Chandler's candles from my pa, who had inherited it from his grandma, who inherited it, I guess, from her ma or pa. It's a dying art, honestly, and I'll be the first to admit that. Artisan candles can be costly, and most potential patrons would rather just run down the supermarket and get one for a couple of bucks, if that. I still do it, though. I slave over hot wax and oils tirelessly. You get lost in it, see? Sometimes I peer into my cauldron and I feel like I can see all the different forms it might take. There's a reason why candles are a spiritual item for a lot of people. In fact, most of my profit is made off the Catholic Church down the road. I get a call about every month requesting another crate of prayer, pillar, and taper candles. Somewhere in the order there is always a request for a vanilla-scented sculpted candle. That's my favorite. They never really detail the style they want, usually just saying, use your imagination. And I do. I spend more time on that one novelty sculpt than I do on all the other candles in the order combined. I use white as a base, but as the candle grows in layers, I'll add greens and blues and sometimes reds. While the wax is still warm, I cut it with my tools. As silly as it sounds, I put a lot of myself into those cuts. Curls and peels, birds, flowers, leaves and petals. When I'm feeling especially crafty, I'll sculpt the image of a saint, usually Mother Mary or Saint Peter. I like sculpting faces. I know I've done it right when I can feel like it can actually see me. I like faces. The sign hanging in my window says open 1 to 7, Tuesday through Friday, 11 to 8, Saturday. Closed Sunday and Monday. This is only partially true because my favorite clients come after hours exclusively when the moon is high and the streets are hushed. I only ever see them once, but that's not such a bad thing. I miss them, yes, because they tell me stories. Sad stories, usually, but special, nonetheless. You know what's strange, though? The happy stories, the ones that make me laugh or smile, those stories are the ones I typically find the saddest in the end. Once, a young man told me a story about his dog, Clementine. He told me the story of the time they got lost in the woods one winter. His parents had told him to not be gone for long because of the bitter, cold winds, and he promised to be back before dark. All evening, the young man and Clementine played in the drifts of snow. They dug tunnels and even made a snowman. He would toss packed balls of snow into the air, and Clementine would leap after him, catching them in her teeth. In all the fun, the young man lost track of time and space. 
He wandered in the direction that he believed home should be, but only managed to get more disoriented in the forest that he had known all his life. The snow had masked all the telltale landmarks that usually guided him. The boulder that looked like a face, the fallen oak tree, the mushroom-capped stump. After hours of searching, he sat down to cry until his eyes grew heavy and he fell into a deep sleep. He told me that he was grateful that Clementine found her way back home, though. She helped his parents find his body later that morning. I gave that man the brightest, prettiest candle I had in the shop at the time. I know, I know it guided his way through that frozen night, and as I watched the pale aura of his iridescent glow get swallowed up into the dark, I believe in my heart of hearts that nothing could even come close as long as he held his brave little candle. I didn't open up the shop that next morning. I had too much to consider. While I could fill countless pages with stories from my time at the shop, I would like to tell a story that happened just yesterday. It was a Tuesday and Clovetown was sleepy. The chill that ran through the streets warded most from even leaving their homes that day, and I thought it fit to make some apple cider scented fills in hopes of coaxing out some patrons with their alluring scent. Fills take far less time than dipped candles, so I can sell them for much cheaper, another alluring quality. While I waited for the wax to fully melt, I sat with a warm cup of tea, feeling quite clever. My entrance bell rang, and I headed for the counter. A man stood there, muddy and shivering. Come in, come in, I plead. You are soaking wet. He looked at me a little stunned, and I guided him into his seat. Jesus, you're freezing. I'll get you some tea. He blinks. Thank you, young lady. I scurry to a kettle that sat on the stove and pour the liquid into a glass jar that would normally have been used for fills. I apologize for the container as I pass it off to him. It's not a problem. It's thank you again, and he smiles, folding deep laugh lines along his aged face. Not a problem at all, I say, and I notice a bruise on his head. Do you need something for that? He taps the yellowing blemish and winces. No, just a bruise. Are you okay? Was there an accident? Shaking his head, he takes a sip of tea. No, well, yes, sorry, yes, I am okay, and no, there wasn't an accident. Just some local kids having a laugh. A laugh at you? He shrugs. I've been around long enough to not care so much. Kids can be cruel, but old men are calloused. He chuckles, then sucks on his teeth. An anger burns in my stomach. That won't do. It's, it's... It's, it was a rock, a small one at that. I just bruise easy. There's a warmth in his tone that soothes my anger. I tell him he can stay as long as he wishes and that I could even get him a bite to eat as well. I assumed him a vagrant, but not by the state of his clothes, by the character of his face. It told its own story of a home far, far away. You make candles, he chimes, breaking me from the well of my thoughts. I do indeed. I take a sculpt off a nearby shelf and place it in his hands. I thought I must be by a bakery. I smelled apple pie, he says, holding the candle beneath his nose. Apple cider, actually, I tell him. I haven't seen you before. Are you from around here? He laughs again. No, not here. Out west, but I haven't been here in a long time. Are you staying in Clovetown? His brow furrows into a delicate arch. For now, but... I'll be gone before long. 
topping off his jar with the last of the kettle. Passing through. I'm always passing through somewhere. We all are, I guess. Passing through this year or this place. Passing by this person and that. Passing by. Passing by. He swirls the tea. My heart beats softly. Where will you be passing by next? His smile returns. Wherever I please. That's the fun of it. No sense in getting blue about all the things you pass by. If you don't, it will. Well, I'm glad you hadn't passed me by. I may not have any other company all day. The two of us chatter about places and people for hours, and noticing that no work would actually get done, or need to be done, I flick off the heat from my cauldron and leave it for another day. I notice, however, that the cauldron is already cold and the wax stiff. At some point, the power had gone out without either of us noticing, since I usually illuminate my workspace with scrap candles that I don't think will sell. This worries me a little, and before long, I've already forgotten. In time, I learned that his name is Bassam, and that his family had come from Israel before settling down in a Midwestern state that he wished not to disclose. I asked him if he had any siblings, but he would only say, Not anymore. They had already passed by. Bassam seems light despite his melancholy demeanor. He always looks thoughtfully lost in some rumination. He pauses before he speaks. He nods before he stands. Everything with the slightest of grins. The sun was setting on our day when he mentions that he should be going. Passing by. You are free to stay the night, I tell him, trying not to scare him with too much sincerity. It's fine, he says. There's still much to see and many miles to go. Where will you go now? Perhaps southward, he mumbles while scratching his stubble. Perhaps not. I notice that he had been holding that sculpted candle the entirety of his stay when he goes to set it back on its shelf. Keep it, I say, and I hand him a box of matches from a drawer behind my desk. It's awfully cold. Plus, you remind me of it. It would be too sad to look at it sitting lonely on display, reminding me of the kind stranger that stopped by one day. He inspects it with clear eyes. Reminds you, eh? With a little attention, it'll burn brightly for a very long time. I couldn't sell it to anyone at this point, as it seems to have been meant for you. I had originally fashioned it for the church down the street, but they sent it back, saying they couldn't fit another one. Their stores were still full from their previous order, so it sat up there on its perch, waiting for someone who needed a little light. He slides the matches in his pocket, and I wrap the candle in tissue, then plastic wrap. I take some twine and a tag, knotting it around the gift. On it, I write, thank you for passing by. Sincerely, Jen. He thanks me and stares at the present for a long while. I give him his time, saying nothing. Bassam leaves with a wave and another smile. The bell rings above the door, and he's gone. The rest of the day is occupied with cleaning and inventory. I am acutely aware of my passing by each and every article of my wares. I feel like I should greet them, or maybe that I should tell them goodbye as I go. I laugh when I catch myself saying, excuse me, after bumping into a table. Every once in a while I consider going out for a drink or a bite to eat, but my shop is the coziest place on earth and is nearly impossible to leave once it has you bundled in its array of sights and smells. When closing time comes, I drift to the window to shut the curtains for the night, ready for my more transient clients, should they choose to come. Just as I arrive at the window, it shatters. 
The shards fly through the air like the dusting of snow that is beginning to fall, and I hear a scream. Run, I hear. I throw my head out through the place where the window had once been. Three kids are rushing down the street as fast as their feet can carry them. That concerns me little, though. On a bench, just to my left, out of my line of sight from most of the shop, sits Bassam. The wind moans through the surrounding alleyways, and I hope that he simply can't hear me yelling for him. I don't even put on my coat before running to the bench through the snow and slush. I reach for the man when I arrive, but he's stiff. On and around the bench are stones, hailed from cruel children who don't know that sticks and stones hurt more than just bones. I find the strength to drag his nearly frozen body off his seat, down the sidewalk and into the shop. His breathing is shallow, and his mouth quivers, forming specters of words. I lie him on the floor and rush for a blanket to throw over him. It's dark, and the violent gale snuffs out the candlelight that normally nests safely inside. I'm attempting to wrap him in the cover, but he's rigid. His breath no longer clouds the air about his face. His lips stand still. His frozen hands are weaved tightly around his candle that he holds to his chest, and I know he's gone. They know he's gone, too. They always know. I pry the candle from his hands and use the matches in his pocket to light the wick, but the storm catches the tiny flame. It disappears, leaving behind a thin string of smoke. I strike another match and light the wick again, this time shielding it with my whole body. I can hear them slinking outside. They groan painfully and sometimes shriek without warning. I focus on the tiny, helpless flame as it holds tightly to its mooring. Please, I beg, but they had already found us. Their feet crunch on the broken glass as they surmount the window. The illumination that usually guarded the shop and drew in my wayward clients was gone. Well, mostly gone. We still had that single, tiny, courageous fire that could barely light even a small area around us, but it would work. It had to work. My patrons are mine and no others. My family had harbored them for centuries, giving them, as best we could, the tools to brave the darkest of nights. That night was no different. It didn't take them long to descend upon us, filling the shop from wall to wall. Give him over, they whispered. He has already been marked. I bare my teeth. No, I growl like a feral hound. Mine. Their tongues lap against the ground impatiently. They pace the perimeter of our tiny fortress in one formless mass. More emerge from the dark corners of the workshop as if the night itself was bleeding. Their threats, their demands, all of it was meaningless as long as I could guard that flame. Once during that night, another patron knocked upon my door, looking for a safe harbor, just as so many had done before. I didn't even see their face. The night flooded out the window and devoured them before they could even scream. Cracks and crunches, tearing, rending, and breaking. I didn't even get to see their face. I blamed myself, obviously, and still do, but... When they had their fill, they came back, as expected. Some ventured a taloned hand into the glow, but quickly retreated with a string of screeches and curses. Please, they begged in unison. We starve. We hunger. He's mine, I yell again, and my heart nearly stops as I watch my breath threaten the flame. 
I try to remember the prayers that I heard from the sisters, but they escaped me. I could only whisper a prayer of my own. He's mine. He's mine. He's mine. Over and over through the deathly hours of that long night, the damned mocked me. They pulled at my boots and tugged my hair. You will be soon. The light will go out. Go out. You will die. Then you'll be ours, they groaned. Spare him to us, and we will spare you. He's mine. He's mine. He's mine. The man you called father, we remember. The car, the smoke, we remember. He squealed for mercy. He cried out your name when we found him. Did you know that? He's one of us. We are him. He is us. He is here. He's mine. He's mine. I clutch my eyes as tight as I can. The night has eyes that even you cannot see. We are never filled. We wait on your doorstep, and you steal from us. You steal. You will be a feast. A feast. He's mine. Then, all was still. Still as an open grave. And I dare a slivered peak. The first crepuscular rays of morning peered over the horizon and through the phalanx of clouds above. The night was gone, slithered away into whatever darkened pit would permit them. A winter breeze quietly shushed the curtain windows in front of me. The tiny candle, half spent, had conquered the deathly howls of the night. I could see its weak glow still waving at me, proudly. Was I brave? It asked me in its silent flickers. You were so brave. I hold it up into the wind and a tail of smoke passes by. If you liked that story, the author has written several more which all take place in or involve the town of Clovetown. You can find those at slash r slash Clovetown. There's a few of them in there now. Apparently, there is also even a little cottage industry revolving around reading these stories out loud, just like on this podcast. Andrew and Foster also do a tabletop roleplay advice podcast called The Dragon's Horde, so check that out if you're interested. Thanks again to Andrew for writing that story. Here's another story from 41 Strange. This one is called Staircase Man. There was a staircase man outside my peephole, standing still. That much I knew. I'm not making this story up. Why would I say there was a staircase man outside my peephole if there wasn't? What reason could I have? His face was very close to the peephole glass distorting his grotesque features and giving the single rectangular step hump on his upper back a gigantic contour in the doorway. I saw him amble back to the old creaky maple staircase in the hallway. He squatted. Slowly, his body sunk into the vacancy of a missing step in the staircase, the step hump on his back serving to fill in the step. He was faultlessly, perfectly camouflaged. No one could tell... He lurked within the staircase as they ascended, descended the flight, as their hands innocently squeezed the banisters. I tried to identify his presence. At night, with the aid of a flashlight, 
and magnifying glass, scanning the tread and rise of the steps for hours. I could not detect the hairline seams that distinguished his wedged-in body from the real steps. That's how insidiously disguised he was, how seamlessly he fit interlocked into the stairwell jigsaw puzzle. Frankly, I was petrified. The former tenant had warned me, but I dismissed her words as the ranting of an unstable woman. Out of pure fright, she'd painted the peephole's lens with red nail polish to block out the view of the man rising from the stairs. She said nobody believed her. Not the neighbors, not the doorman, not the janitor, not a soul. She was taken to a mental asylum. How could I take her words seriously? But right she was. This staircase man was beckoning me at my door each and every night. He would rise from his hibernation cubbyhole like a vampire rose from his coffin for a midnight excursion. I could see his malevolent shrunken eyes hover behind the warped peephole glass. His pupils were like the round, flat heads of wrought iron nails. Sometimes he softly knocked. By morning, he'd left a lingering odor of musty wood drifting in my nostrils through the keyhole. I inquired about him all around the building. Then I stopped inquiring when the neighbors began to give me strange looks. The last thing I wanted was to be sent to the asylum, too, so I clammed up. But at night, in bed, I trembled. Who was this bizarre, inexplicable man? Where did he come from? Why was he in the staircase adjacent to my door? Why was I chosen? What did he want from me? Sleepless nights became the routine. I was sick with fever, round the clock. It got to the point I wanted to destroy that evil presence outside my door more than anything else I ever wanted in the world. One cold November, I resolved to kill the staircase spawn, rid it from my life once and for all. I'd had enough stalling. Soon, I'd be too ill and weak to fight. The day of reckoning was now at hand. I readied myself. I selected a distinctly long, sharp hunting knife with an ivory handle from my toolkit. I had bought it from a shaman on a safari expedition in Tanzania. It might serve me well, I reflected. Perhaps its blade would possess some special power to annihilate my night terror. And so I waited, my ears on the stretch with expectation. Then the faint knocks came at 3.08 in the morning. Knock, knock, knock. I tiptoed to the door, silently, ever so, so, so silent I was. My eye widened in horror as it pressed into the peephole glass. Sure enough, outside the door, there was the living, moving segment of the staircase. Right on time, he would not miss his appointment with fate. Yes, now, now was the perfect moment to murder him. I unlatched the door. I creaked it open, warily, ever so warily. But before I knew it, his long, wooden fingers with splinter-like nails clawed at my soft throat. Call the police, I shouted, hoping a neighbor would come to my rescue. None did. I stabbed and stabbed his thick, wooden step hump. The blade broke. 
At that precise moment, the staircase man squeezed his slanted, baluster-like shoulder through the gap and flung the security chain open, knocking me backwards across the vestibule. The snapping door chain gave off a noise like a rattlesnake. The odious staircase man stood in the wide open doorway, laughing. That's when I froze in the utmost state of shock, filled with nausea. His laugh was the exact same as mine. In a voice that sounded entirely like my own, he ordered me to get out of the apartment at once. Before I could get on my feet, he threw me out like a vagrant, slamming the door on my face. I was left alone out in the dark hallway. Terrified, I gathered myself together. I regained my balance and dusted off my pajamas. I touched the new step hump that was growing fast like a rugged mountain on my back. I ran my hand along its cold, weather-beaten, calloused slope. It smelled of mold and mildew. Oddly, it felt like it had always been there. I got used to it quickly. It felt right. I retreated and hid, taking refuge in the cavity and dingy nook of the deeply shadowed stairs where no neighbors could look at me with their inquisitive stares. Ah, I thought long and hard. Yes, me, the staircase man. Have I always been? I don't know. I can't say. My head throbs ceaselessly. It aches till it breaks. But I'm not insane. That much I know. That night... And every night afterwards, I stand motionless in front of my old door. From time to time, I knock softly. I wait for my old frightened eye to appear behind the peephole and see what I turned into. That concludes episode 19 of Curseland. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. The show is also on Twitter at Curseland, so you can message me on there if you'd prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to you all later.